So that was the subject. Uh, is it worth carrying on being a Christian? And we thought about some of the changes that will put pressure on this particular question. So uh, certainly, well almost certainly, be changes in parental influence. So if you, if you didn't come from a Christian family, this probably won't make too much difference. If you did come from a Christian family, it's likely to make quite a bit of difference. So when you become a student, the parental influence changes and that might bring into question whether, it, whether, you, really, whether you really intend to carry, on, to carry on being a Christian. Uh, you will also almost certainly have a change in your church environment. So whereas it used to be perhaps a habit to go to church every Sunday, then now this changes. You don't have to. You have to make a different effort to get along etc and you if you were brought up in a church youth group that will all change as well so these things will put pressure on whether you're going to carry on as a Christian and I've put some other things you will now find that you have pressure from your peer group peer group meaning the people in the same class as you or the same accommodation as you and there will be pressure and influence perhaps with your mates of the same sex and not inconceivably of the opposite sex which will become an issue in becoming a student there are you're exposed to a whole set of new possibly new but certainly present moral possibilities and a whole set of freedoms and these you have to come to terms with how you cope with them and if put on top of that there are intellectual and social challenges so you will perhaps meet clever people who completely disrespect your view your uh, view of life your Christian faith and you might face things like that you hadn't had to face before and then there'll be the social challenges of how you fit in because as a previously perhaps as a Christian at school and at home you had a set of Christian friends so your friendships and your Christian faith nicely overlapped but now you might find that you feel attracted to a group of people who are not Christians at all and so there are social challenges that you have to face. And then so those are the things that might pressurize you and attract you away. And then let's just think about the Christianity that you have been living with so far before you became a student. It's not entirely impossible that the Christianity you had was very much based on having fun and a social life. So youth groups operate quite rightly on having fun and being friends. But there's always a possibility that your Christianity was rooted in those things and those things are now changing. There's also the possibility that your Christian faith up till now has been sort of child faith, to put it, if I can put it that way. That it's what you're taught in Sunday school, you never questioned it. Uh, it's untested 
and now as you face these tests it's not so much that the pressure from outside but the vulnerability of what's on the inside you might have a child sort of faith which has been untested you might also find that you have a youth culture faith which is based on things like being passionate always seems to be a highly desirable thing in youth culture uh, on being high emotionally and being with an enjoyable convivial group of people because that's what youth culture Christianity uh, has those things and I suppose it's inevitable that it does but youth culture Christianity may not be robust enough to cope with the fact you've got hard work to do it might not be robust enough to cope with the fact you might be lonely it might not be robust enough to cope with intensity of temptation so these are all new factors that make somebody say is it actually worth carrying on as a Christian so that's my introduction so I'll stop for a moment does that make sense anybody want to ask any questions anybody want to enlarge on that or or challenge any of it add to it yeah Thank you very much. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yes, it doesn't. It doesn't always. Doesn't necessarily produce that uh, question. Is it worth carrying on as a Christian? Yes. Thank you. It certainly can. It certainly can. Yeah. Okay. Let's go a little bit further then. So, with, with that as an introduction. Oh, I've had one more bit there. Uh, that. It's not unknown for people as they go on in years to come to a point where they say, well, I don't care what my mum and dad said. But I want to do what I want to do. And that can be a good thing or a bad thing. So, yeah, people do need to have their own faith. You can't live off the faith of your mum and dad. You have to have faith for yourself. But of course, if that means I go my way so whatever mum and dad says I'll do the opposite uh, so if your mum and dad were Christians they might have actually got a very good reason for the way they did things and if you say well I'm just going to do the opposite anyway that's not, not a particularly wise thing to do so I'll just add into that the sort of independence factor people want to be independent right let's look at some theology of this look at what the Bible says about it and I have four points God knows God plans God promises and God warns okay I'm addressing the question is it worth carrying on as a Christian assuming that that's that, that's our topic somebody saying is it worth carrying on and I'm going to say well God knows and God plans 
and God promises and God warns so let's go through those so number one God knows let's look at some texts from the Bible Jonah chapter 1 might take you a little while to find Jonah you can always look it up in the index at the front which I think is what I'm going to do Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 Ben, please could you read those to us? Thank you very much interesting this is as we can see it's part of the bible uh, this is the prophet jonah and he has instructions to go in that direction what's that direction is east he's got instructions to go east to the great city of nineveh and preach against it because his wickedness has come up before me so the lord has got a mission for him and he doesn't do it we could say a little bit more about the decision-making process that he went through, but the upshot of it is that he says, I'm not, going, I'm not up for this. I'm not doing this. I'm not going to carry on being a prophet. I've, I've, I've finished with this. And he, he runs away from the Lord and heads for Tarshish. He goes down to Joppa. He finds a ship bound for that port. Tarshish... Uh, some people said it was Spain let's assume it's Spain he says I'm, I'm not up for this I'm going off to Spain I'm going to have a holiday in Spain and coincidentally you see there's a ship going for, the very, for that very port so that's great isn't it and off he goes to run away from God but God is on the case and God sends a great storm which unsettles things that's a not a very pleasant thing for Jonah to be chased by God like this but I'm just making the point that in the Bible there are people who just run away and say I'm not going to carry on with this I've had enough and God knows about it and God has ways of of chasing people so there's one example God knows uh, here's another example about ships 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 18 to 20 so we've gone hundreds and hundreds of years forward from the prophet Jonah 1 Timothy chapter 1 18 to 20 Chris, could you read that for us, please? Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction, keeping the prophecies once made about you, so that by following the 
Thank you. So here's another example. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, I want you not to do what these other people have done. What have they done? Or what, what should you do? You should hold on to the faith and a good conscience. You should hold on to trusting and obeying. Some people have rejected these and they've shipwrecked their faith. It does happen. And there's the names of two of them. And again, Paul is on the case. But I'm making the point that we're not talking about something so theoretical that no cases ever arise. I'm not talking, I'm not, and I don't want, want us to think we're so spiritual that this is irrelevant to us. Paul thinks it's relevant to Timothy. He says, I really, really don't want you to do what those guys have done. So you must hold on to the faith, fight the good fight, hold on to a good conscience, keep trusting and obeying. And let's look at Psalm 139. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4, and then verse 7. Psalm 139, so you want to go in the middle of the Bible and root about in there. It's page 6 to 8 if you've got a Bible from the back of the church. Psalm 139, verses 1 to 4 and also verse 7. Mark, please could you read those for us? out those bits from Psalm 139 but you see the point of it he's saying it's not only that God knows these things happen and sees these these people who have said I'm not going to carry on it's not just that it's just it is that God actually knows very deeply what goes on inside me the struggles that I have the vexations that I feel, the fears that I have, the anxieties, the, um, the elations and the depressions. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O oh Lord. So God knows it's a, it's a double-edged thing, isn't it? Because it's scary that God knows what we're thinking. But it's also immensely comforting. Other people might not understand. Other people might not notice. Other people might not be able to help us very much with perhaps deep struggles that we go through. But God does. God does understand. You know me, says the psalmist. And then that extra verse, I can't run away from you. Even if I did go on holiday to Spain or, or quit or throw it all in, 
I can't actually run away from you. So God knows. That was the first point. Let's look now at God plans. Now it used to be part of the Campus Crusade evangelistic methodology to say to people God has a wonderful plan for your life. It's an interesting thing to say to people. Uh, God does have wonderful plans. There is a question of who he has wonderful plans for. So I think it's not, I don't think it would, I think it would be a very bold person who could really and genuinely go up to any random individual and say God really does have a wonderful plan for your life. I think that would perhaps be a bit irresponsible to to say that to people. But God does have wonderful plans. Let's look at the way that God describes his plans. So I've got some verses here. 1 Corinthians 2, New Testament. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 2. Verses 6 to 10. Thank you. 1145. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 10. This is Paul saying, we, you know, don't think that what we're talking about is just superficial uh, and frothy. It is a powerful and deep message. And please, could Paddy, Paddy, could you read us 1 Corinthians 2, 6 to 10? Thank you very much. He talks about uh, the revealing by the Spirit, and he talks about the message. This is the message of the gospel that he's talking about. And if people receive that message, and if people believe that message, then it is certainly true that God has wonderful plans for them. And it's so wonderful that, as it says here, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So there is a wonderful, amazing things, a wonderful, amazing plan uh, that God has for those who receive the gospel. And let's focus this in the words of Jesus, particularly in his plan to keep his people. So John 10, 25 to 30. John chapter 10, 25 to 30. John 10, 25 to 30. 
This is to do with sheep. This is to do with Jesus being the good shepherd. Julie, please could you read that one? Uh, John 10, 25 to 30. Thank you very much. It's a very clear statement by Jesus about his sheep. Not everybody is his sheep. The sheep are the ones who listen to him and follow him. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. So he's talking about a... a, a policy of security that his sheep are in his hand and there is no power in heaven or earth or anywhere else that can snatch his sheep from his hand and then Jesus goes on in a Trinitarian manner to say my father who has given them to me is greater than all no one can snatch them out of my father's hand if they're in my hand says Jesus then that is neither more nor less than saying they're in the Father's hand because I and the Father are one. And the sheep cannot be snatched, cannot be taken from the Father's hand. It's the doctrine that's sometimes called the eternal security of the believer. If somebody is a believer, God has a plan for them and, a, and undertakes to keep them so that nothing will ever take them away from God and I include in that not even themselves because sometimes we're our own worst enemies aren't we but God says I won't even let you snatch yourself out of my hand nothing no one can snatch them out of the father's hand and let's look at John 6 37 to 40 which makes the same sort of statement about God's plans and his policies John 6:37 to 40 this is Jesus talking about him being the bread from heaven and then he changes the the metaphor from bread to the will of God John 6:37 to 40. Angela, could you read that for us, please? Thank you very much. Thank you very much. So you notice there's, a, there's some 
interactivity between Jesus heavenly father and Jesus himself so verse 37 the father gives me people all that the father gives me will come to me whoever comes to me I will never drive away so Jesus reveals to us that there are certain people who have been given to him by the father and those people in fact will come to Jesus and he never drives them away perhaps that's a way of saying I will certainly keep them and then this will I have come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of him who sent me and there's two expressions of God's will anybody like to tell us one of them what is the will of him who sent me what is the will of the father thank you verse 39 so this is one way of saying the will of the father that Jesus loses none of all that the father has given him but Jesus raises them up at the last day so that's one expression of, of the will of God this is, this is what God has planned and purposed this is his settled uh, you could say counsel this is his, his decision he's given them to the son and the son will lose none of all he has given me but raise them up at the last day and there's another expression of Jesus, of the will of the father thank you so both these sentences end up with the same thing raising up at the last day raising up at the last day one of them is to do with God's secret dealings the father gives to the son those who are given actually come to the son the second one is what's in the public domain everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life so there's what's above the surface everybody can see and what's below the surface that is really part of God's secret uh, secret plans secret plans the father gives and they come to, the, to Jesus above the surface anybody who looks to the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day so something there about God's plans so anybody want to have, uh, make any questions or observations about either of those two? So if you were thinking, I don't know whether I'm going to bother carrying on being a Christian, you've got this side of it that uh, you're not just fighting this on your own, you're not just struggling God's miles away, there is a, a, a work of God to, to keep and defend his people and to not let them be snatched away that's, a, that's an important truth and it's certainly a truth to encourage people who aren't going through that particular struggle at the moment you're walking with the Lord you're believing in him and he's keeping you something to be grateful for you know the Lord is keeping us the Lord is surrounding us with his salvation so that's a, a wonderful encouragement 
Okay, let's go on a little bit further. Next two, God, God promises and God warns. So God makes promises and the response, the correct response to a promise is to believe it. So God makes promises to be received by faith. And what I want to say is, so this is Bible Christianity, it's to do with receiving the promises of God and believing them. And there's a whole range of promises that are made in the Bible. But if you were to balance them up, the balance tends to be towards the world to come. The balance tends to be towards the world to come. I mean, there are, prob- there are promises for today, there are prob- promises for how I live my life now. But the promises that, that Christianity offers aren't, that's not where the center of gravity is. They're not all lumped up on today and tomorrow and my life here and now. The weight of them is really on the world to come and what is beyond death. That's where the, the, the weight lies. And we have to learn to focus our Christianity in that sort of direction. Otherwise, we're going to get, get unbalanced and become vulnerable. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, which is a famous chapter about people living by faith. And I think what the writer of the Hebrews is doing is saying to his Christian readers, we've been teaching you about Christian faith. And the Christian readers are saying, yeah, but the Old Testament has got a lot going for it and that's not really about faith at all, is it? And the writer is saying, well, hold on, it is. This faith business isn't a new thing. All the people in the Old Testament, they all had faith too. Just look at the sort of ways they lived that's faith. So I'm not asking you to do something new. I'm not asking you to forsake your heritage. I'm asking you to grab hold of what your heritage is. Faith has always been the key component of the spiritual life. And he references a large number of people in the Old Testament. And if you notice, the way he references them is to say they had faith that stretched beyond their current lives into the future and even into the distant future. And that's Christian faith too. It isn't just, you know, God's going to help me catch the bus tomorrow, it, although God does say he will help us catch the bus tomorrow. But our faith, the, 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 the weight of it is much further in the future, which helps us to carry on believing if, even if we miss the bus tomorrow because that wasn't the main thing. Do you see what I mean? So Hebrews 11 verse 4 By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings and by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. That's interesting isn't it? His faith lasts beyond death. That's the sort of quality of faith in the Bible, and certainly Christian faith. And verse 5, Enoch, take for example Enoch, 
guy in the Old Testament. He was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Now he had faith. And interestingly, you see, his faith took him beyond death. He did not experience death. His faith went beyond this life into things to come. Now verse 6, I think, doesn't have the same sense of being to the future. It just says, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. Ah, this bit's future. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And as we shall see, the reward is a future leaning sort of thing. Verse 7, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. That was faith. By faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He wasn't just thinking of this present world. His faith went beyond that and condemned the world, it says. Verse 10, speaking of Abraham, who is a great example of faith, says he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So his faith was looking well into the future, beyond his own lifetime, to things that he never experienced himself, but he still believed God for the future. That's the way faith operates. That was verse 10, verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. These people are all looking forward to their heavenly city, says the writer. That's what their faith was really all about. God has promises to be received by faith. Verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. This is in the business with his son Isaac. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. He was thinking with a faith that goes beyond this world, beyond this life, beyond death. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. I was looking ahead. Verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. He was thinking beyond death. That's the sort of faith that he had. And verse 22 by faith Joseph when his end was near spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones he was thinking beyond his lifetime into the future that's how his faith operated and verse 26 this is Moses who regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward so he had, there was the here and now, but he said, that's not the main thing I'm concerned about. It's what happens ahead 
it's the distant future, it's the reward beyond my current experience into the world to come. He was looking ahead to his reward. Uh, verse 35, this is a long list of names of whom it is said, women received back their dead, raised to life again. Well, that was for this life. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. See, they were looking ahead of this life. So long list there, but um, to do with the life of faith. If we live the Christian life with our eyes simply focused on today and our current situation and how well we're doing and whether life is easy or successful or whatever, we will fall short of Christian faith because Christian faith looks ahead. And you could even say that Christians are the people who are prepared to run at a loss in this world for the reward ahead. So if you think of Moses, for example, he gave up his university education, the chance of promotion, high political power, uh, flashy cars, uh, all the Apple upgrades. He, he, he said, I'm not going to be too bothered about that because I'm going to go and join this group of fairly random refugees because they're the people of God and they have a future. So he was prepared to lose all that and to live by faith. And God said, that's far better. He left behind the treasures of Egypt for the sake of, as the writer would say, what he was really looking at was the sake of Jesus Christ. So, uh, what I was going to say was, if you're wrestling with, shall I carry on being a Christian? This is the perspective you need to have. Not just, will I, will I be healthy and wealthy and successful? But, where will this all work out long term? What is really worth staking my life on? What is really worth pressing forward to what is the real aim in my life and for Christians it is that long term goal one day we will see Christ one day we will see him face to face one day he will say behold I make all things new that's the day that will make it all worthwhile and that's what we have to bring into the equation as we're thinking about our faith nowadays. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. Two Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 speaks about the, 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 the sort of promises that we've just been looking at. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 Aaron could you do that for us please yeah that's fine
Thank you. So he says, you know, these, these promises are very powerful. These promises enable us, as it says in the NIV, to participate in the divine nature and to actually break free of all the psychology and all the uh, spiritual web which would otherwise keep us in this world with its values, with its system, with its corruption and with its evil desires. He says, you know, we would just be locked into that if it were not for these promises that sort of strike through all that into the world to come. He has given us very great and precious promises that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So this is my third point. Um, there are promises to be believed. There are promises to live by. And the mark of the elect, or one of the marks of the elect, one of the marks that God has chosen you and has that the Father has given you to the Son, one of the marks of that is that you believe the promises. And not just any old promises, but these promises. Promises laid out in this sort of way. So I could ask you, do you believe the promises? Will you believe the promises? Will you stake your life on the promises that God has made? Do you get the sense of what it is that he's promising? Do you get that sense of the glorious future of the final um, regeneration of all things, of Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that what it says on that block behind me? Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Yeah, that good, it says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That's what this plaque says this man lived for. He lived with his eyes set on that. Uh, and so the question is, will we live by those promises? Not to, as an encouragement to do so. And fourthly and lastly, God realistically warns us. So I think we could say this, that the mark of the elect is even more than what I said before. The mark of the elect is that they believe the promises and heed the warnings. The mark of the elect is that they believe the promises and they heed the warnings. They say there's something really wonderful to be believed and there's something really scary to be avoided. Those two aren't opposites. I mean, they're, they're not incompatible. The, the, the elect who fear the Lord do both of those. They believe the promises and they heed the warnings. So I've got a few examples of this. There's Galatians 5, 16 to 21. These are to people who, one way or another, were thinking along lines that would take them away from Christian faith, not necessarily going back. Well, perhaps going back, perhaps going off course. Because Paul says at the beginning, I'm actually amazed at you that you are so quickly departing from what I came and told you about. And in Galatians 5, he 
sets out the two possibilities to them. Galatians 5.16, so he says, I say, live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Living by the Spirit is to do with believing the promises, as he makes clear earlier. He says, that's the way to go. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. That's the other way. And I warn you, he says, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the, the Bible has warnings, you see. It says, if you are thinking of carrying on in that route or going back to that route or dabbling in that, I warn you, that is not the way into the kingdom of heaven. You will not arrive at that wonderful destination if you go down that route. People who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a warning there, you see. Have you ever been to Beachy Head? ever been to Beachy Head? It's a um, huge cliff. There's a lighthouse near the edge and there's another lighthouse down below actually. But the, the, there's a place where the road goes round and it's quite near the edge there. And I once went there and I saw a couple who were uh, sort of teasing each other to see who would go nearest to the edge. You know, in a sort of, well let's see how close to the edge we can get sort of way. And it's fantastically dangerous. And if you, if you ever look sideways from another part at where the edge is, there's bits where it hangs over like that, and you could be mucking about on the edge there, and it would, you would easily fall over. Very, I, I do not recommend playing the game of see how close to the edge you can get without falling over. The way to do it is to, is to lie down with somebody strong holding your feet and just see how close you... Like that. But Paul says, some people live the Christian life like this. They just see how close to the edge they can get. Maybe they've got a, a false idea of, of God promising without an idea of heeding the warnings. That doesn't fit. You're not really trusting the promises unless you have a mind to heed the warnings as well. Let's see, as an experiment, how close we can get to the edge. You see, that's not a Christian way to do it. There's a guy who came along to the church and thought, as an experiment, he would try not ever reading his Bible and not ever praying and seeing whether, seeing what happened. A very dangerous experiment. If I remember correctly, after some months, he thought, actually, I will read my Bible and start praying, which was great. But it's a dangerous experiment. There are warnings. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews is a letter of warnings. Hebrews 3. And this is the, the letter to the Hebrews. is to people who are toying with the idea of not being Christians anymore. They think they will go back to being Jews because... Judaism is tried and tested and all sorts of other reasons in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7 the writer quotes the Old Testament the Jewish Old Testament as the Holy Spirit says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts 
as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert he says that still stands don't try hardening your hearts don't try hearing God and then doing the opposite of what he says don't try doing that and he says in verse 12 see to it brothers that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God make sure you don't do that make sure you don't try any dangerous experiments turning away from the living God but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness interesting that the opposite of turning away is being in a community in which people encourage one another to hang on to the Lord but encourage one another daily while it is called today so that none of you may be hardened it's an interesting insight into the value of Christian community Living, trying to live the Christian life as a lone ranger on your own is a dangerous thing to try you need to be in a community of believing people uh, so that was Hebrews 3 7 and 12 and then 10 23 to 29 which sort of says the same, same thing it says we've got the gospel we've got the blood of Jesus Christ we've got the way to approach God and in Hebrews 10.23 he says let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth no sacrifice for sins is left there's no plan B if you don't if you stop believing in Jesus Christ and his cross there is just a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God if anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the son of God underfoot and has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace it's quite stern isn't he he's saying really 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 if you turn your back on Jesus Christ if you're saying I can't be bothered with him if you're saying I can't be bothered with his shed blood uh, it means nothing to me he said well there's no plan B you know what a terrible thing to do there's no way back from that how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished if they do that and then he goes on to say I'm sure you're not really thinking that are you uh, he says uh, um, don't throw away your confidence it will be richly rewarded uh, we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who believe and are saved so I don't want to make that into a blanket condemnation but it is a stern warning don't get near the edge of the cliff John 15 verses 5 and 6 also functions as a warning this is the bit about Jesus being the vine and his people being the branches and the importance of abiding in Jesus. Abiding is a very favorite word in John's gospel. John 15 verses five and six. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Well, it's a great promise, isn't it? If we, if we stay close to the Lord and the Lord is in us, which we pray may be the case, you will bear much fruit. Very important promise. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I meant to say in Hebrews 11 that the achievers were the people who didn't have their ultimate focus on this world. And that, that's a true statement, isn't it? There, uh, people say, oh, that such and such a person is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly use. Well, actually, people don't say that, but it's a saying that, you can, that some that pe- people say that they say. I never actually heard anybody say it in real life. But the idea of being so heavenly minded, they're no earthly use. The Bible says the opposite. It says it's the people who are heavenly minded that are the real achievers on earth. Did you notice that in Hebrews 11? They did this, they resisted lions, they had their heads chopped off, they hid in caves, they, stopped, they contradicted kings. All those people did those achievements because they were looking ahead to their reward. It's the ones who are heavenly minded who are the achievers. Now come back to John 15. Without me you can do nothing. All the real achievements are done with and through Jesus Christ. And then here's the flip side of it. If you don't remain in me, if anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. You cut yourself off from the source of real fruitfulness. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. It's a a warning, isn't it? Of losing connection with Jesus Christ. He says, don't do it. The way where that leads to is fruitlessness and uselessness and an end that does not merit, uh, does not uh, bear thinking about. So those are the four things God knows. He knows. And God plans. He's got plans. That's very comforting to know. And God has got promises for us to believe. And he's got warnings for us to take notice of. So if you were somebody who'd come along this evening and you were seriously thinking, well, this might be the last time I ever come to church because I'm I'm not sure whether whether it's worth carrying on. What I'd say is just have a really good think about all those factors and I reckon you probably have something to settle in your heart. You probably need to go home and get a place where you can really pray to the Lord and say, what am I really aiming for in my life? Am I aiming just for this world and all it has to offer? Which is quite a lot. Or am I aiming for the world to come? Which is even more. Which is so great that it makes this world look tawdry and pointless and empty compared with what Christ has to offer in the future so you need to settle that and then you need to take some deliberate steps of uh, obedience to make some deliberate actions based on 
what you're really aiming for. So there'll probably be things that you have to say, I need to say no to this. And there are other things you need to say, I need to settle it in my life, I'm going to say yes to God in these particular ways. It might be very hard. But that's... Nobody said the Christian life was easy. Okay, let's stop there. So any questions or observations? Or